Well, hey, good morning, church. How's everyone doing? Good? Um, hey, can we try something for a second? Everyone in the room, let's clap. That is how we clap. All right, I'll just say this. I'm Taylor. I'm the worship pastor here, if you don't know me. But there was a lot of half-hearted clapping this morning. Come on, Psalm 47 says, clap your hands, all you people. Shout songs for joy, for God is a great king above all. And I know you woke up and there was more snow than you realized that there were you thought there was going to be, and you had to clear it before you got to church, but you're here. So let's, let's have joy, amen? There's joy in the house of the Lord. Isn't it awesome having Pastor Chris lead worship here at the Spring Lake campus? It's been a while for that. See, so yeah, there's claps for him. Love it. Anyways, we got other stuff to talk about, so let's get to it. Good morning, church. Uh, if you have your Bible, you can turn to Ephesians 2. We're going to be continuing in our study through that book. We're going to be picking up in chapter 2, verse 1. Last week, Pastor Dave, he walked through the end of chapter one, this prayer from Paul, that Paul was praying for the church, that they would uh, experience transformation, and that they would grow in faith, right? And he ends, that prayer ends, so it's kind of like, generally our prayers end with, in, in Jesus' name, amen. It's not there, but let's just put it there. So you got, in Jesus' name, and then what does he say next? Chapter two, verse one, and you were dead. Doesn't that seem like a bit weird of a turn? Like we're praying this awesome prayer. God, I pray for the church. They would experience transformation and joy and hope and the power that is found in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. You were dead. It's a little heavy, isn't it? And I could even sense it in the room that as I say that, you know, I don't want to make light of the reality of death because it's a heavy topic. And I know that even for some of the room that, that you know, we, we grieve when we experience death in our family or people that we know. It's a, it's a hard subject. And so I don't want to make light of it, but at the same time, um, um, I know that it can be a bit heavy. And so as we uh, just kind of step into that, rather than being too morbid, as we venture into this talk about death and um, ultimately life, what comes to mind is this. My son, Shepard, is now uh, four years old, and he's just in this awesome stage where, like, we're best friends. I'm his favorite person in the world, and I'm really praying that it's not just a phase. And so one of the things that we love to do together now, uh, we've just started playing video games together. Like, just living the dream, playing video games with my son. Come on, this is awesome. And so we, uh, we have a Nintendo Switch, and so the game that we play most often that he likes is uh, Super Smash Brothers. And, um, and he's always got to be Sonic, and, you know, I have to be whoever he tells me I have to be. The bad guys are usually like Bowser and Donkey Kong because he loves Mario. But um, here's the thing. My son is just absolutely terrible at this game. He's so bad. And uh, what happens is this. He's got, like, the, the attack button down. Like, he can he could just go to town. But the moving around and the jumping, not so much. So if you've ever played Super Smash Brothers, what happens? He just falls off the level within, like, 10 seconds. And every single time, he says with just, like, utter shock, as if, as if it's the first time it's ever happened, he goes, I'm dead? And I know it's kind of light and silly, but as we come to this topic and this reality, there will be some of us in the room that would, with the same, uh, uh, you know, just um, illusion and unawareness, be shocked to realize that we are in a state of deadness. But as I think about that story and my son, and he, I'll tell you, he's progressively getting better. Like even this morning, I was like, you want to get in a game quick before church? Yeah, let's go for it. And um, what better way to prepare for preaching, right? And uh, he was better today than he was like five days ago the last time we played. 
And, um, and my hope for you is the same. You know, if you would come and be shocked to realize, man, I'm, I'm in a state of deadness in some capacity, that you would have received the invitation to uh, step out from that. Um, so ultimately today, what we're going to be seeing in this passage, what we're going to be examining is two paths, two experiences of life. We're going to examine first, what does it look like to be dead? Then secondly, what does it look like to be alive? And then ultimately driving to and asking ourselves the question, how can I go from death to life? And so uh, we don't often do this, but uh, as we prepare just to dig into this passage, if you got your Bible open, your Bible app, whatever, would you just stand with me as we read through our passage today? And um, we'll just invite you to do that as we stand. You know, posture says a lot. And so our posture says, God, your word is an authority over us, and we are stepping forward. God, we want to hear from you as you speak from your word. So let me read this over us in Ephesians 2, verse 1. Says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good work which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's pray. Father, we come before you now. We open your word and we ask that you would speak through it. God, we submit ourselves to it. We're ready to hear from you, to receive. Would you soften our hearts to hear it? Holy Spirit, would you uh, pierce our hearts to be changed and transformed, to be more like Jesus after our time today? We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can go out and find a seat as we dig into this passage. So like I said, two paths, two life experiences. So first we're going to look at what does it look like to be dead? And the first thing is this, that uh, being dead looks like living in brokenness. See, this is the reality that we are all born into this world, in this life, in a state that we are physically alive, but we are spiritually dead. And verse 1 says this. It says, you were dead. And why? It says, in trespasses and sins. That man is born of the state of sin, naturally dead and separated from God. We know that this is true because for Adam and Eve, when they've committed the first sin, they were now in this living in this state of brokenness, this fallen sinful state. And we are now born in that same state ever since. And I know as you're sitting there, if you can hear the sound of my voice right now, you are alive. Like, don't, don't question that. You're living right now. But you're living, many of us, in a state where we are physically alive but spiritually dead. And that's because of sin and trespasses, this brokenness. That word sin in the original text is uh, like this picture of a bow and arrow shot towards a target, missing the mark, falling short of God's standard for living. That trespasses, it's this idea of slipping, stumbling, falling, going in the wrong direction, falling short of God's standard, living outside of his design for, for life. And I think if we were all honest, that early in our lives, we were keenly aware and felt that sense of brokenness, the sense that I'm falling short, that I'm not enough, that I'm broken. 
You know, just one small example that comes to mind to illustrate this. Have you ever just woken up in the morning and you're just in a really bad mood, like right at the, and, and what do we say? Oh, I just, I woke up on the wrong side of the bed. Like, what does that even mean? No, you didn't. You just woke up and you're a sinner and you're living in your state of brokenness. And what do we do in that natural state? We live out of that condition, that nature. It's just, you know, waking up on the wrong side of the bed is just a silly excuse for the reality that we're broken sinners. And this broken, sinful state of spiritual deadness, it's apparent not just in our condition at birth, but throughout our lives, the way in which we live, the way in which we walk. And this is the second thing it looks like to be dead, walking in corruption. You know, here Paul describes that in our spiritual deadness, our state of brokenness, that we have a tendency towards walking in corruption. You know, it's really due to, he describes here, Christians have long called them the the three enemies of the soul, the world, the devil, and the flesh, that we are ultimately enslaved in our sinful condition to these three enemies of the soul, and they lead us to walk in corruption. That's the language here. Do you see that? Walk, walking in that way, following the world, following the prince of the power of the air. That we walk in that way. Uh, That word follow means to be mastered. That we are mastered, enslaved, following the lead of these three enemies of the soul. So just really briefly, I want to walk through these three enemies of the soul and how they play out in our lives. First, we walk in corruption following the world. You know, and growing up, I don't know about you, I grew up in church and kind of like living in the world was like, you dance, you wear pants with holes in them. What is wrong with you? That's not what I'm talking about. That's not what Ephesians 2 is talking about. It's not talking about surface level things that aren't objectively sin. You know, the word world here, uh, um, in the New Testament, when the word world is used, uh, it usually means three things. The first is literally the planet, planet Earth. The second is the inhabitants of the Earth, the people who live in the world, the group of people. And the third, though, is this uh, idea of a system, a corrupt, evil system that is opposed to God. And that's really the primary intention here. And isn't that so much of what we walked through during our Christian worldview series? That whether you call it secular humanism or the world, that in this life here on earth, that there is a temptation and a tendency for us to walk in corruption of the sinful fallen world, to allow culture and groupthink to define what is right and wrong and good and bad rather than God as the source of truth and his word as a revealed way for us to know it. So we walk in corruption following the world, but also secondly, we follow the the enemy of the soul that is uh, the devil, Satan, that here the devil is described as the prince of the power of the air. This is, he's like a, uh, the tribal leader, you know, that that the the devil is in an authority in this world. And, um, You know, if I was honest, I'd be super uh, interested and it'd be fun to just like do a deep dive on a theology of the devil, but we're not, we don't have time for that. That's not the focus of this talk. But what I simply want to say in this moment is that often when we think about like Satanism and demonic oppression and things like that, we think about like uh, pentagrams and witchcraft and heavy metal music. But so much more often the way in which we experience that is just the, uh, the temptation to walk in corruption that so much more often satanic forces and demonic oppression is just living in sin. And, and so even maybe you're sitting there and you're like, I've never really experienced anything satanic or demonic. Like I don't have crazy stories about seeing things at night or anything like that. But I'm just telling you, every one of us has experienced uh, the satanic forces 
uh, in this world, that it influences us all, that in this place here on earth, that Satan has authority and power to deceive. Now, we don't know the end of the story that at the end of all things, that God wins, that God will return and everything will be under his reign and rule and that the devil doesn't have full rule and reign. So we don't want to give him too much weight and authority, but he absolutely has an influence. You know, put uh, plainly, it's a bit like this. You know, if you work at Harvest, that it's only a matter of time until you're influenced to get into good coffee. Now, my man, Ben Slank, he's actually sitting right here. He's been on staff for uh, about two months now. And just the other week, he's like, hey, Taylor, we need to get together so you can show me how to make coffee because I need to to get in this. I'm like, my man, okay. Now, maybe you would call that satanic demonic forces. I don't know. But... But in the same way that, that the devil has an influence on us in the way in which we live, leading us to corruption and sin. Um, thirdly and ultimately, we walk in corruption following the third and I would argue the primary enemy of the soul, which is the flesh. Verse 3 says it this way. You can look there again. It says, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. You know, often when we think about the flesh or we think about the desires of the body, our, our mind initially goes to things of a sexual nature, sexual desires, and certainly that is a, a big part of it, but it's not the exclusive part. It's much, it's much broader than that. That um, a, a, a pastor named Tim Keller, I feel like we quote him often, but he defined the flesh as this self-centered human nature. That put simply that uh, the flesh, this enemy of the soul, is our propensity, our our proclivity towards being selfish and self-centered in our desires, that um, ultimately what this would mean is that living a life that follows our feelings and wants and desires, and that's why it's the primary enemy of the soul, right? Because if we live in the world and there are things around us that would tempt us into living in corruption, then ultimately it is what we want and desire in our flesh, and so we do it. That, that the devil, you know, would have influence and authority in this world. And, you know, the, the devil does not make us sin. So let us never use that as an excuse. But under his authority and influence, then in our flesh, we have the temptation, desire towards sin. And so we, we do it. You know, one pastor said it this way, that in our flesh, that it is like hell uh, living inside of us, starting inside of us. And then eventually it will take us there for eternity. And that really ultimately this leads us to the third thing it looks like to be uh, dead, uh, living in brokenness, walking in corruption, and that life is a vapor. Life is a vapor. Now, maybe initially that, what does that mean? What is that language? And um, really, you know, there's this harsh reality that as a result of our, our, our spiritual condition, our deadness, our state of brokenness and corruption, that there is impending doom of God's wrath waiting for us at the end of this life. And I know we don't like to hear that. I know that's not fun to hear. But at the same time, there is nothing more just than God's response of wrath to sin, right? We live in a world and a culture where there is such this hunger and thirst for fairness and equity and equality and justice. And we love the ideas of those things when it means bad things for other people and the benefit of us. But there is no thing more just than God's response of wrath for sin, and um, really, it makes me think about this idea, you know, that ultimately that, that idea of hell inside of us leading us to hell, 
that, that life being a vapor means that ultimately it's a, uh, an eternal life of separation from God, but it begins with a life that is chasing fulfillment, chasing purpose, that we're looking for it and we can never find it. You know, it makes me think of the language of the book of Ecclesiastes. You know, a few years ago when I was still the high school pastor, we did a series on the book of Ecclesiastes. We'd, it was like going through the whole book in four weeks. Kind of intense, right? I don't know. I think it was a little over the heads. Um, I love the book, but I'll I'll one-up myself here. We're going to do the whole book of Ecclesiastes in like one minute. And the biggest thing that I take away from reading the book of Ecclesiastes is this, this word, uh, hevel, which is often translated in our Bible, vanity or meaninglessness. That ultimately, this word that is used 38 times in the book of Ecclesiastes describes life in this world. It's a vapor. It's a smoke. It's something that we can see and sense, and we know that it's real, but we just quite can't grasp it. And in our sinful, fallen condition, we are trying to grasp upon life. And in this life, we're constantly left empty until an eternity will be separate from life and death forever. You know, we see this in Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes 2.11 One of the uh, kind of theme verses in the book says this. This is Solomon. He wrote it. He said that I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Then jumping ahead to the end in Ecclesiastes 12, he said, remember also your creator in the days of your youth before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain and the dust returns to the earth as it was and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Vanity of vanities. Havel, vapor, says the preacher. All is vapor, vanity, meaninglessness. And we experience that. We see this, right? That when we try to live for the things of this world, of this life, we try to find purpose and meaning and happiness and fulfillment, but we're constantly left empty. And we see this often in celebrities, don't we? Those who seem to have it all. They have power and influence and wealth, and they have it all. But often we see that actually internally in their experience of life, they are miserable and feel empty and feel without hope in the midst of it all. You know, one example that, that comes to mind, I'm not sure if you're familiar with a rapper named Juice World, but Juice World is, um, you know, he's uh, right now at this moment, the 13th most, most listened to artist on all of Spotify. Like he's a huge rapper and it's just been in the last few years that he's really gotten a bunch of influence. You know, many have even called him the, the voice of this generation, that being, you know, Gen Z. And um, even some call him a, th- a therapist to millions of young people. And the interesting thing is that uh, so much of the content of his music, his songs are all about dealing with topics like anxiety and mental health and depression. And that ultimately um, this idea that, that he would rather be dead than alive. In one of his songs called Can't Die, I'll read an excerpt from it. It's a censored excerpt, I'll say that. Um, says this, sometimes it feels like I can't die because I never was alive. Cross my heart, hope to survive, that I'm going to be the last rich one alive. They tell me that I'm going to overdose in no time. I told them I'll do it in my time, not your time. Got my heart in a hellhole, it's on fire, but I won't let myself get trapped in here this time. You know, there's a document, documentary recently that came out kind of showing his life, and you could see in a, that he uh, took uh, t- over 20 opioid pills a day, and on top of that was drinking, you know, a bunch of codeine, you know, cough syrup mixed with soda. And, um, you know, ultimately in 2019 at the age of 21, Juice World ended up 
overdosing of opioids. His friends say that he drank a liter of codeine the day that he passed. And uh, it's heavy. And I don't bring up that story to be grotesque. I don't bring up that story to speak ill of Juice World or youth culture or the next generation or rap. But I just use this one sad story to say, this is our condition. That life is a vapor. This is you. This is not about just some random person that we look down upon that we're better than or we judge or that's so sad. This was us at birth. This is you. This is what Ephesians 2.1 says. You were dead. You were born in this place. Ephesians 2.3 says, we all lived in corruption. It goes on to say, like the rest of mankind. This is not them. This is not they. This is not the person across the road. This was you. And this is either a past or a present reality for you. You know, sometimes I hear people in the church say, I've always been a Christian. No, you haven't. You were dead. You were born an enemy of God, separated from him, living in brokenness, walking in corruption, with no hope and fulfillment and purpose in life. You were dead. And I know that that is heavy, that is hard to hear, And I don't mean to be intense for the sake of shaming you or judging you or condemning you or pushing you away, but instead to paint the picture of the harsh reality of our state apart from God. And now as we turn and we'll examine the second path, what does it look like to be alive? That we would contrast the two and consider who do we want to be? Where do we want to be? So let's consider a second human condition and path of life that we're shown in the the rest of the verses in Ephesians 2. What does it look like to be alive? The first thing is this. Living with confidence, a life that is marked by confidence and belonging and purpose that rather than living in the brokenness and the condition of a fallen sinner, that those who are alive live in a state of confidence. And we see this language peppered throughout the remainder of today's text. It says, those who are alive are raised up, right? Quite simply, alive people are alive. They are raised to life. You know, that word is this, uh, where we get our word sink, you know, that we are in sync in the resurrection life of God. It says that those who are alive are seated. And if uh, you understand the gospel, if you've put your faith in him and have trusted in him, obviously at this moment in time, you are not uh, literally seated where Christ is, right? Philippians 2 says that he is seated at the right hand of the Father on the throne of heaven. But it's this idea that we are legally figuratively seated there, that that is the condition, this condition of being seated where Christ is. And the cool thing about that is this word seated is really this idea, right, that our our perspective is shifted. If we are seated in the heavenly realms, that we are no longer under the weight of sin and death, but instead we now look down on our problems and the things of the world. You know, it's kind of like this. Have you ever uh, walked into a restaurant on a Friday night when it's really busy and there's like just dozens of people waiting for a table? And then you walk up to the host and they ask you that question, do you have a reservation? And it always feels pretty condescending, but that's, maybe that's just because the way I dress. And I go, yes, in fact, part of my party is already at the table. And they're like, okay, sir, follow me. And they lead you past the dozens of hangry people who are glaring at you. Who does this guy know? And they take you right to your seat. But that's, that's it. What does it mean to be alive? to have a seat at the table, to have a place of belonging, to have a life that is marked by confidence. 
to have a position that is seated in the heavenly places and looks down at the rest of the problems of life. You know, being alive looks like living with confidence. The second thing it looks like is this, walking in good works. And don't let the Christianese of that point lose uh, its, its weight on you. You know, verse 10 says that those who are alive are God's workmanship. This Greek word is poema, right? Like a poem, a work of art. I love that picture, that those who are alive are a work of art, made by God for good. You know, Pastor uh, John Tyson, a pastor in New York, said it this way, the church at its best is a gallery of lives displaying the grace of God. That the one who's alive is a good work themselves. You are the art piece, the good work. But not is just the person themselves a good work, but verse 10 goes on to say that the one who's alive exists for good works, to walk in them, right? That language of following and walking instead of walking in corruption, instead it's walking in good works, right? If um, in the sinful nature, in the flesh, if it's this idea of existing and living for ourself, for our selfish desires and feelings, that to be alive, to be a good work, to live for good works is a life that is marked by selflessness, a life that exists for the good of others, right? That idea of, of life-giving, right? Do you have people in your life that you can think of? It's like, man, that person is so life-giving, they're just like a fountain of life. Like I, I talk with them and it's just refreshing. I was trying to think of an example of this. And quite honestly, I just thought of so many people in my life who, who, who are this. People that it's just like, man, I just go have a conversation with them and I'm encouraged afterwards. Like I was just having a conversation with um, a, a, a sweet woman who's work, uh, serving as an usher this morning. And I just walked away. I'm like, she's like, I'm sorry to take up so much of your time. It's like, what do you mean? I'm walking away filled up and refreshed. Can you think of people like that in your life, that, that they are alive people who exist for good works? That's what it looks like. I mean, the, the last thing, the third thing that um, it looks like to be alive is this, that life is a gift, right? That la rather than life being this vapor, this thing that feels unattainable, that we can't get fulfillment in in this life and ultimately an eternal life of separation in God, that instead, the person who's alive, that life is a gift. And obviously, first and foremost, when we hear that, we think about the idea of eternal life, that the person who's been made alive has the promise in God of eternal life with him forever. And that is absolutely a piece of it and a very beautiful thing. But sometimes what we miss out is also the beautiful reality that it's meant to be that this life is a gift, that the one who's alive in this life, right, rather than feeling like I'm constantly trying to get life, I'm searching for it, I'm out for me, that instead the person who's been made alive has all that they need. They have fulfillment in life. And so that's why as we talk about the alive person being a good work, we can exist to be life-giving because we've gotten all that we need in life. We see the gift of life, all the blessings and things that we have and so as we examine these conditions, you know, we paint these two pictures, these two paths, these two available life experiences, you know, to be dead, to live in brokenness and walk in corruption and life to be a vapor, a smoke, unfulfilled and unattainable, or the alive person, the one who um, ultimately lives with confidence, walks in good works, and life is a gift. They, are, they have all that they need in life and they exist for life-giving. Like I think if we put these both up here, every single person in the room would choose, man, I wanna be alive. I wanna, I wanna be that guy. 
I, I don't, I don't want to be that guy. That life sounds miserable. I, I want this. But what I would say is this, that, is that there's a danger for us that all of us were born here, dead, all here, every single one of us. And for us to be in this place and just say, I want that life. So what I'm going to do is just not do the things that this person does and do the things that this person does. But that's, it's not going to work. It's never going to work. That I was kind of thinking about this idea and preparing the sermon this week. And what, uh, as I was doing that, I was like, man, I'm thirsty. I'm going to go get a drink. We got like a drink fridge up there. Open the door. I'm like, oh, something stinks in here. What's that? Kind of like forage through the back. What's the source? Find this uh, Pyrex storage and um, it smells pretty bad. You know, it's, it's spoiled leftovers. And it's in that state. I thought about bringing up a volunteer and having them be like, hey, just attest for me that this actually smells bad. And last night they were like, don't do that. Someone might like vomit on stage. No one wants that. Take my word for it. It smells terrible. It's in that state where like you look at it and you don't even really know fully what it is. Like, I'm pretty confident there's, a, there's rice in here. There's beans. There's corn. Maybe that's chicken. I don't know. But if in that moment, if instead of a drink, I was looking for something to eat, and the only thing that was available was this in the church office fridge, I was like, man, I'm so hungry. Can I eat this? Is that going to fulfill me? Is it going to be good? I don't know. It's pretty, pretty dicey. Here's what I'm going to try. I'm going to take some salt and pepper and re-season it. Oh, we got some crushed red peppers, some, some pizza spice. Let's throw it on there. Ah, uh, it still smells pretty bad. Let me take it and throw it in the microwave and, you know, just mic it up. That'd be great. No, microwaves are terrible. It's not going to fix anything. But we do this, church. We do this. This is a perfect picture of our experience of life, that we are dead, that we are spoiled leftovers, that we smell rancid. We've got no hope and promise and ability to give life to others. But often what we do in life is just say, man, I'm just going to mic it up. I'm going to throw some seasoning on it. I'm just going to try and not be dead. I'm just going to try and do good things. I'm going to be a good person. I'm going to try and find fulfillment in life and things like my career, my money, my spouse, my good looks, my money, my influence, my new toy. We do that so often, right? It's like, oh man, I really want that thing. I'm going to buy it. It's going to make me happy. And then you, you're waiting for that package to come for days. And then it comes and you're like, greatest day of my life. It's Christmas. Every day is Christmas with Amazon. And then it comes and it's like, this is amazing. And then like five minutes, a minute later, you're like, this didn't make me happy. Because it's never going to work. If we're dead, if we're in that state, we can never simply just make ourselves and act like we're alive. And that's our big idea today if you're taking notes. And the thing that I would hope that you would take from today's talk is that acting alive is not the same as being alive. That you are either dead or alive in this moment. One thing is true of your life experience. You are dead or you are alive. And dead things can't just make themselves alive. You can't simply just act like you're not dead in sin anymore. So ultimately this drives us to the question. I've tried to do it. I've tried to just be a good person. 
I've tried to find fulfillment. I've tried to make this life not a vapor, but let it be a gift and make me a better person. And it hasn't worked. So how do we do it? How do we change our condition from dead to alive? How do we get from brokenness to confidence in life? How do we get from hell to heaven? How do we get from bondage to freedom, from corruption to good works, from darkness to light, from despair to hope, from wrath to glory? How do we get from death to life? Well, I glossed over a few verses earlier. So read with me again in Ephesians 2 verse 4. What does it say? But God, but God. Two of the greatest words in the Bible, the greatest conjunction of all time, that in our dead state, in our dead condition, God intervened. God shows up. And what does he do? How does he intervene? He continues in verse four. God being rich in mercy, rich in mercy. I love that word mercy. Ultimately, undeserved forgiveness that God intervenes and says, here is forgiveness that you don't deserve and not just a little bit of it, riches of it. Because of the great love with which he loved us, that God loves us and hear that today. In your deadness, I know that's been rung home clear today, that God in his love intervenes in your deadness. He doesn't love the future improved, better version of you. His love for your dead, fallen version of you compelled him to intervene. It says, even when we were dead in our trespasses, right? He made us to live together with Christ. How do we go from death to life? In Christ alone. In Christ alone. Continues, it says, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. Hear this. In your dead, fallen state, God intervened and he came with mercy and love and grace and riches of it. How did he do that? I love the word, it says immeasurable kindness. Kindness is this idea of action, putting your money where your mouth is. And God intervened, bringing mercy and grace and kindness and life. And how did he do it? In Jesus. Jesus came, right? We just celebrated Christmas. Christ came and he lived the perfect life. Rather than us living in brokenness and corruption, Christ lived the perfect life that you and I could never live. Then what did he do? He died and bore the wrath that we were meant to receive. When he died on the cross, he bore the weight of our sin. He bore the wrath that we're meant to have so that at the end of this life, we would not have to receive the consequence of our sin. And then it says, three days later, he rose again. He rose again over victory, over sin and death so that you and me, that we could experience that. And how do we experience that? It says it really simply here, by faith faith, by putting our trust and confidence in him. And it's important to note that the scripture says that this is not your own doing, that you would know in this moment, whether you've already been made alive or you're dead in this moment and you want to be made alive, 
The fact that you're here in this moment, God in his love is orchestrating and is calling you to himself. Then earlier in Ephesians 2, 1, when it says that he opens the eyes of our hearts to know him, that even the faith that we would have to follow him is his doing. How do we get from death to life? In Christ alone, that he intervened for us, that he did it for us, and all we have to do is receive it. All we have to do is recognize what he's done and respond and receive it and then live in light of it. And so as we close our time today in a moment, we're gonna close by taking communion. So actually, if you have your Bible, you can go ahead and close that. Just set it aside next to you or put it away, but don't check out because we're not done here. Put that down and then I want all our focus here as we would all have the invitation and the opportunity to respond to today's message, to move from death to life, to live in life. And so as we prepare to take communion, if you forgot to grab those, the cup on your way in, the ushers are coming forward, just slip a hand up and they'll get one in your hands. And you know, communion is just for those who are alive, for Christians. But if you're in the room and that you don't identify as that, I would even invite you just to raise your hand to get a copy of that so that you can, you can have the opportunity to take communion for the first time today. So don't hesitate if you forgot the elements, just get that in your hand and decide later if you wanna take communion. In Matthew 26, it says this. It says, now as they were eating, this is Jesus and his disciples at the last supper, right? Right before he would walk to the cross to die in our place. And it says, Jesus uh, took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat this, this is my body. And he took the cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. In a moment, we're gonna take communion, but I want you to understand what it is and why you should take it. What Jesus said here, what he was doing is he said, this in our context, this cracker, this carb-like substance, this is the body of Christ, which represents his perfect life that us in our dead state, we could never live the life that was required for us to be made alive, but he lived it. And he took the cup and he said, drink of this. And this symbolizes my blood, that we would remember his blood, his substitutionary death in our place, right? We sang earlier, thank you, Jesus, for the blood that washes us and makes us alive. And as we remember that, we don't just remember, often we do this, we come to church or we even take communion, we remember the truth of the gospel, but then we just go out and nothing changes and we're the same person. But we remember what Christ has done, not so just that we would recognize it, but that we would receive it, that we would identify in what Christ has done that we are now identified only by who he is. And just as Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live, I now live by faith in the son of God. And so as we take communion, there are two types of people in the room. The first person in the room, you are, you're dead. Your present experience of life is perfectly described by that first list. You see the brokenness and emptiness in yourself. You see that you just make decisions that aren't life-giving and you're trying to find purpose and meaning in life, but, but, but you just can't. And I would just invite you, I'd invite you that you don't need to continue on that literal death march, but instead that you can stop in your tracks 
and turn to the other path that has been forged for you in Christ and that by faith in his grace today that you can be made alive and receive his salvation. That the second group, maybe you're in the room and you're like, I've already been made alive. I put my faith in Jesus, my anchor to the ground, my, my firm foundation as we were singing earlier. And maybe through a lot of this message, you're like, this is a pretty evangelistic message. I don't know if this one's for me. I hope that's not been true for you. I hope that we would be honest, even as people who already identify in Christ, that we still see in ourselves a brokenness. We still see areas of our lives where we can be bent and walk in corruption. We can see things in this life where we wrongly place our hope and look to things to give us the life that is only found in Him. And that as we come today, that we remember what He's done and we recognize it and we receive it, that you would come once again, identify in Christ, leave this room living, not in yourself for the good life, but in Christ receiving the life he already gave you. So if you're either one of those people and you wanna leave this place alive and walking in life with Christ, would you just go ahead and bow your head and um, to prepare our hearts to receive communion, whether for you, you wanna receive life right now for the first time in this moment and take communion for the first time, you can do that. And if you forgot the elements, it's okay. You can still pray this prayer. And if you've been a Christian one year, five years, 25 years, 50 years, pray this prayer once again as we realign our will and our hearts to be unified with Christ and receive communion. So let's bow our heads, close our eyes, repeat this prayer after me. Father God in heaven, if you wanna pray that prayer, if you wanna be made alive right now, or you've been made alive and you once again wanna realign your will to that, let's pray this prayer boldly and loudly by faith. Father God in heaven, say that. I confess that I was dead in sin. I need Jesus to make me alive. I need to be forgiven. I need to be saved. I need confidence, I need hope, I need life. I put my faith in Christ alone. I receive your love and grace. I will live now for your glory. I will walk in the good works you have for me. In this life, and for eternity. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, hey, church, we do what Jesus uh, uh, called us to do. We remember his body broken for us, his perfect life. Take and eat. In the same way, we remember and receive the blood of Christ shed for the forgiveness of sins that we would be made alive. Drink. And again, church, we don't just take communion for a moment, but to respond. So right now, I want to invite you to go ahead and stand. And as we close our time of worship today, um, this is a song that I can almost guarantee everyone in the room knows. And may we sing this with confidence, with faith, with life in Christ alone. Let's sing.